hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk Footnotes. I am one of your hosts, Damien Abraham, and your other host, as always, is my friend and your friend too, Chris O'Toole. Psych! Chris is on vacation this week, so we had to come up with something of, of equal spectacularness to fill the void left by Chris O'Toole. And I think, I really do think we've outdone ourselves. This week on the show, we have all of the people that put, well, there's a lot of people that help put this book together, but the the four main kind of nucleus of the brand new book, Tomorrow Is Too Late, an incredible, I've previewed it now, an incredible history of Toronto hardcore in the 80s. This thing's well over 300 pages. It's due out in about two weeks. You can order it right now at UXB Press. Cool reference right there. UXBPress.BigCartel.com. UXBPress.BigCartel.com. I can't get that URL out without fucking up. So there, you can figure it out between those two renditions of that URL. Uh, It is a unbelievable tome. Order it now. There's a 7-inch. There's a poster you can get as well. This is this is the book that I've been waiting for. You know, I, you any regular listeners to this show or or the other show on Turn Out a Punk or, or Turn Out a Punk knows how much I love this scene and how underdocumented I feel it is. There are some great books about Toronto punk and Canadian punk. Perfect Youth by my friend Sam Sutherland, Liz Worth, another amazing writer friend of mine as well, whose incredible book, Treat Me Like Dirt, is absolutely essential reading about the early history of Toronto punk rock. And there's a great book about the BFGs we talk about here too, but there's never been a book that really just documented the whole of 80s punk in Toronto. And there wasn't a breadth of records that were released then. It was mainly on tape. Um, So this has been a long time coming and something that I cannot wait to be able to do. Just dive into and really, really explore. I did preview it. It looks fantastic. All the bands you'd hope would be covered. There's tons of bands you've probably never heard of. Certainly bands I've never heard of a couple in there. Uh, and yeah, it's great. It's an oral history. It's, it's, it's a, it's a labor of love by, by four people that, uh, have been involved in this scene at that time and continue to be involved in this scene. Fran Grosso, Derek Emerson, Simon Harvey, and Sean Cherry all of them do labels, bands, zines have done it, have done it all. Fran continues to do a, a label. Uh, Derek did incredible, incredible mid eighties zines that are beloved by me with another member of MSI, his band from back then, Glenn Salter, Simon Harvey, of course, has come up on this show many a time, uh, with ugly pop records and just being a Toronto hardcore, a, a punk rock, hardcore historian of, of global recognition at this point he writes for ugly things, you know, and then Sean Cherry, who did a unbelievable comp, one of the few vinyl releases from Toronto punk, but really got a good snapshot of a certain period of time and a cool, it's a fantastic comp, the progression comp and did a label, did a zine as well. So these four people have gotten together and made the ultimate kind of history of mid eighties, Toronto hardcore book, you got to pick this thing up. Tomorrow is too late uh, and pick it up before it's too late because this thing is actually selling pretty well to people all over the place because once again, 
us nerds about punk rock, we, we want to hear about it on a global level. So people are ordering this thing from all over the place, and you should too. All right, I'm done. I'm not going to blather anymore. Sit back and enjoy Fran, Derek, Simon, and Sean on Turned Out a Punk Footnotes. Yeah. Thank you all for coming on the show. I think this is the most people I've ever interviewed at one sitting. So maybe we should go around and associate names uh, to voices. So do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Sean Cherry, and I did a fanzine and record label in the 80s called Still Thinking. Uh, My name is Simon Harvey. I'm uh, punk. (laughs) (laughs) You've come up before on the show. Usually misquoted. (laughs) For example... The whole thing about me claiming that uh, Poison Idea's discontent uh, was their answer to Japanese hardcore. You did say that, no, Simon. No. What, I, what, what I quoted him about saying was that it was their answer, which you can tell when you listen to it, to Extreme Noise, Terror, and Doom and the stuff that's coming out of the UK at the time, which is really clear when you listen to that record. I, I, I remember Japanese stuff, but we'll get into this in a second. <laughs> Derek, let's move on. Uh, okay, so I'm Derek Emerson. I uh, started out doing fanzines in the earlier part of the 80s, um, more on the kind of thrash side, metal side, and uh, by the mid-80s I was in a band called More Stupid Initials, and yeah, so this project actually kind of stemmed out of that. I don't know if we want to get into it right out of the gates, but um, we started up a, uh, a Facebook page for More Stupid Initials, and I would just put flyers on there, and they would just be typical local shows where it might be, you know, MSI, Missing Link, and, um, I don't know, Son of Happy, something like that, which, you know, to us, that was a pretty typical kind of show, Um, but the response was always overwhelmingly positive, and people would tell stories about that show, or it would spin off into talking about other shows that they went to, and inevitably, almost every thread would end up in, why isn't there a book about this? And so eventually I saw this for a few months and Sean was one of the people that said, uh, why isn't there a book? So I, so I, uh, so I, I, I private messaged him and I said, why isn't there a book? And you've done a zine and I've done zines and I work at a printing company and we know this material like the back of our hands and we lived it and we should do We should be the people uh, to do the book. So that's how it kind of stemmed is from starting that uh, MSI page. And from there, it basically everybody we talked to, felt the same way as us. It was so welcoming because we would just say the idea of what we wanted to do and just people were very generous with their collections and with their time and um, and their input and they really opened up to us and um, and allowed us to create the book that we are talking about today. And well, before we get into the book, one more introduction. Oh, I'm Fran Grasso. I uh, grew up also during the 80s and I knew these guys, except for Sean, um, growing up, and uh, yeah, I was just a, a friend and a fan, and when they brought up this idea of the book, then we were just very excited to put it together and help out and pitch in. Awesome. Well, I think that's the thing, is this is a, a scene that I think we can all agree is pretty under-documented. Uh, you know, like there's you know books about previous time periods, uh, there's one book about what is it, dirty, poor, and happy, or dirty, poor, ugly. The, dirty, dirty, drunk, and punk. Yeah, dirty, dirty drunk, drunk, and punk. Which is about, a great book. Yeah, just about the BFGs. But like, you know, what you're focusing on is a much broader period in Toronto hardcore, a much broader kind of scope of what is Toronto hardcore and stuff. What to you is the reason you think this scene is so under acknowledged? Because like, that's the other thing is like when you actually look at what these shows, there were like 
hundreds of kids of these things, yet this is one of those forgotten scenes in punk. Like, you know, Simon, I know you're um, kind of like my teacher in this world, but like, it's one of the forgotten scenes, you know, and it's it's one of the scenes that just gets passed over. Why do you think that is? Well, do you want to go ahead? Uh, well, there's a few reasons, I think. Um, and we get into these in the book, but um, just as an overview, one of the main things is that um, the recordings that were done in Toronto typically came out on cassettes. Mm-hmm. And so cassettes didn't tend to travel as far and wide as vinyl did back then. Um, thankfully, for all of us, uh, Brian Taylor had the foresight to record all these bands uh, and put them out on cassette because that's what we all have to re- reference back to now. All that would have been lost to the you know to, t- to time if Brian hadn't have uh, gotten in the studio and and really made a mission of recording these bands. He was passionate about it, and he really uh, he was obsessed. Mm-hmm. And uh, now in the book, he talks about how he didn't really have the uh, knowledge or financial resources to put these things out on vinyl. He he wishes in hindsight, I think that he, maybe he had. And if that had have happened, I think that the scene would have gotten more exposure than it did. Uh, that's one of the reasons. Another one is that, as you mentioned, uh, local shows tended to draw a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so there'd be bands like Direct Action would, would you know, have five, 600 people at a show, and they could make $1,500, $2,000 a night. And contrast that to the, when they went on tour, and they went down to New York, and they played at CBGB's to a handful of people, and you know, made 30 bucks. If you're in their shoes, which one are you going to do, right? It's, yeah. it, it get a van and make thirty bucks, and uh, not make not have enough money for gas, and you know be starving on the road, or stay home, play for two thousand dollars to a loving fan base, and you know, and get your rent paid off for playing one show at Larry's, that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So I think that 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 fact that our scene was so strong and supportive actually kind of held some bands back in a way because you didn't have to leave to go play shows. Whereas bands like SNFU, you're kind of, you know, landlocked. You're going to try and, uh, you know, travel a little bit more. And hence they toured, uh, you know, like obsessively and they got tighter and they, you know, just got more of a following. And so they have a bit more of a legacy worldwide than some of the Toronto bands. Although later on in the 80s, some of the bands did get to Europe, like Sons of Ishmael and uh, Problem Children and a couple, a couple of others. And some of them did American tours, but for the most part, the earlier bands like Direct Action, YYY, uh, Chronic Submission, Sudden Impact, they, basically they stayed pretty much local, mm-hmm. um, maybe just straying slightly outside the province, but not like national tours across the states or anything like that. But it's weird because we have all the resources here, especially at that time when there's there's new waves call new wave records coming out. Fifth Column did their own seven inch around that time, right? Like it's just it's funny how just like punk it didn't get to punk putting out vinyl. I think uh, I, don't, I couldn't isolate a single cause. All these things are true. But at the same time, you look at the states where there's no borders. You can travel to other cities. Take a place like, like cities that are in many ways in, in terms of their size and location aren't all that different from Toronto. Like Chicago is a very close city to Toronto. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, there's Articles of Faith. There's the Effigies. There's Naked Ray Gun. But none of those bands were really huge. Yeah. And Philadelphia, what do you know from Philadelphia? Like, why die? I mean, like, there's a 7-inch, you know, if you if you disregard the LP. Ruin, McGrath, I mean, these are not huge. We know them because we're idiots, but, like, they're not huge bands. Yeah, yeah. Yet, like, some places just, there's something in the water, there's a critical moment in the culture where the right combination of people and ideas and, like, a venue, someone with money to press records, happen, and some momentum is achieved, and, you know, it, it always peters out after a few years anyway. Mm-hmm. You talk about 70s punk, and it's, you know, it's it's... 77, 78, you talk about 80s hardcore, really, it's like, what, 
79 through 83. Mm -hmm. um, these things are quick, they're fleeting, they're a moment in the culture. And there's going to be places like uh, Southern California, LA, or, or uh, New York City that are just so huge and have so much culture and such a tradition that these traditions run into one another. Mm -hmm. There's an existing tradition to, to play off and to continue. And um, things like punk or hardcore are really just moments in an ongoing, you know, constant cultural evolution in places like that. Toronto didn't have that. And then we didn't have a Discord or an SST to yeah. put out stuff. Like, Fringe started doing stuff later, but they start licensing, you know, the, the Too Drunk to Fuck from the Dead Candies. Which is weird because they never really did pick up the local... Well, I guess, like, with the exception of the Youth 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 record over there. They did, like but they did but some local stuff, and then they... Guilt they, Parade, I guess, yeah. too. Sudden Impact. Yeah. Sudden Impact, yeah. But the big difference yeah. there is that uh, you have labels like... Um, I mean, uh, Alternative Tentacles, obviously. I mean, there was money there because they were already doing stuff with Cherry Red. Mm -hmm. um, people like Greg Ginn starting SST or uh, the, the, the guys that started um, Discord. There was money behind those, but they, were, they came from money. They had money. I mean, this is, this is in some ways, I think, sometimes the dirty secret of punk rock is that, you know, a lot of this stuff that's DIY and, and self-activated, self-actualized, really comes from outside money. And you take someone like Brian Taylor in Toronto, who is absolutely like, you know, the motive force in hardcore as a cultural happening on like being recorded and distributed in this city. He was not someone that had access to a lot of money. So he did absolutely the best with what he had. But you can't really lay it on Fringe because Fringe was a commercial record label. You know, Fringe's um, motivation for putting out records was to sell records. And, uh, with Discord or Reflex or whatever else you want to exclaim, touch and go, <coughs> that wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, not that they didn't want to sell records, but it wasn't primarily a commercial venture. It was an artistic venture, and I, we just don't have an equivalent here. Yeah, but, like, but then Vancouver, right? Like, Vancouver has way less population, uh, way smaller scene, but, like, yet produces way more records in the same time period. It's just weird that that was, like... Like, is it because we had a music industry here that, like, was pulling people away? We have metal that's kind of pulling people away? Is it? We, well, I would say it's, I'm not entirely sure I would agree. Because there are, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of the difference between punk and hardcore anyway. I mean, you know, there's, there's punk that's not hardcore, but if it's not hardcore, if it's not punk, it's not hardcore. So, uh... When you talk about, like, the classic hardcore bands, what we'd consider hardcore from BC, from Vancouver, they are, they're 70s punk bands. Subhumans, DOA, I mean, they came to greater prominence in the 80s as part of hardcore, but their roots were very much as 70s punk bands. And um, when you start talking about the straight capital H hardcore records from Vancouver, there, there really isn't much. Nothing's expected. Like, the first thing that comes to mind really is the, uh, the Death Sentence 12 inch. Yeah. And that was on French. And what's that other. Uh... Oh, fuck. What's the other. That, that one that was like a bunch of tapes. They did a bunch of tapes and they're like super dis dischargey thing that became like people just like super caught on to it the last few years unnatural silence maybe that's it yeah yeah but i mean exactly i mean it had no yeah. impact whatsoever yeah like, but, but yeah. even then like i don't know I, I i agree with what you're saying it is it is definitely early on that you have that but even as that scene kind of matures you get like bands like the enigmas and the stuff like um yeah but they were a garage band yeah but i mean just the fact that those bands were putting out records and it just doesn't seem like we had the same outside of new wave outside of the music industry kind of record industry here in, in Ontario. Well, you know, to bring the focus back to Toronto, yeah. let's let's go back across the country yeah. now, back over to Toronto. Um, 
like there was a great scene and there were a lot of these bands and they were recorded but they came out on cassette as we mentioned mm -hmm. and uh so back to brian and to give him credit like he put together the compilation that really was the the cornerstone of what toronto hardcore was all about uh toronto hardcore 83 right and mm -hmm. it came out as a cassette mm -hmm. i think it's pretty much everybody here would probably be you know of the same mind that if that if we had a discord or if, or one of these labels an sst and that had to come out that would have been our sort of you know flex your head or this is boston not la that would have been our stamp on the, this is what the scene is all about mm -hmm. um but again it came out on cassette it had limited um you know exposure outside of ontario and i think that's part of the reason why it didn't travel the way that it probably should have because the bands really do stand up against the bands of that era i think um and in later years in the last seven or eight years brian uh, put out that on vinyl finally, and uh, yeah, and people have been buying it up. Oh no, Brian didn't put it out. It was a bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> That's over here, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> but you know, again, just to to finish off the Brian Taylor part of the segment here, um, what he did was actually really resourceful. Like he. Uh, would take the bands into the studio. They'd record on off hours. He he met up with um, Acusonic, um, Paul Galleon, and um, they, you know, had a, had a had a good working relationship where. It was the first time that Brian ever got to work on the board, and he said in the interview that uh, that we did with him a couple of interviews. Uh, he said that he'd always sort of envisioned how he would do it, but he just didn't have the you know the technical knowledge or training but paul gave him that option gave him that shot right to, to work the board take bands in record them the way he felt that they should have been recorded when yyy first started they just were recorded by you know the old rock kind of mainstream uh you know engineers they didn't know how they were supposed to sound right how a punk bands should sound and so he got frustrated with that and he said i think i could do a better job and so he did um and part of the cool part of why these things came out like i said is because Accusonic also had a side business called AccuDub. So Brian would record the bands and then he'd just walk over to a, a bank of, of 30 cassette uh, decks, put in blanks and run them off real time, stick on the labels and take them to Record Peddler and sell them. Mm -hmm. And when those would sell, he'd come back, pay Paul for the blank tapes that he had used and start the process over again. So he'd be in there, uh, you know, from midnight till four in the morning running these things off and then go work at Record Peddler. So he really did work his ass off to, to get this music out there. And again, to his credit, this is why we are documenting this now. We have these these documents that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, there's like there's definitely some bands that you know are forgotten because they weren't documented in the same way. Like to me, the Ugly Models are like one of these bands that just exists in myth. APB. Yeah, yeah. APB is another. Band. There's, there's an APB there, tape, right? Yeah, there's a tape, yeah. but uh, if there was a record. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the Ugly Models is there, there's just that those songs on the Smash tape, right? And I yeah. think that's. That's it. That's it. And it's it's amazing because you hear these stories about how that was the first hardcore band. Or or Micro Edge? That was the... First yep. skate band, yeah. Skate, yep. band, skate yeah. band. Like, Micro Edge, there's that tape that I guess has been <clears throat> kind of circulated a little bit over the last couple of years. But, like, once again, like, these bands weren't, you know, I guess given even the Brian Taylor treatment where they have, like, a sort of, like, canonized cassette album well and that's part of the reason why the book that we're putting out comes with a seven inch mm -hmm. and that's we mm -hmm. want to give these bands the proper platform and uh and do them right you know like they deserved and micro is a perfect example they lead off the seven inch and um you know this is their chance to have a have a little bit more of a uh 
of a, a worldwide stage, let's say, where the record hopefully gets out there. People recognize the value of that band and all the other bands that are on there. There's 10 bands in total, all of which should have got a better uh, shot at things, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're trying to right the wrong that that, uh, that was done, I guess. So, yeah, when was the... the the start of what you consider the hardcore scene? Like, when did you guys pick to start your book? I, as a history guy, completely object to that whole idea. You know, I, I don't think that it's that it's valid. But um, it, this is something that's addressed in the very beginning of the book. I mean, you, it's, we get people, who was the first hardcore band? I mean, there's no answer to those questions. There's no such thing, right? But uh, there was an anecdote that didn't make it into the book. Um, that I thought would have made a good starting point if we'd ended up with more of a, a, a straight narrative than we ended up um, using to, to organize the, the, the book, um, which is that uh, Greg Dick, who you've had on the show before, yeah. was in a band called The Dream Dates. Uh, I'm sure you know. Fantastic band, but doing a kind of a, a tough heartbreakers, teenage head kind of punk rock and roll. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough, it's, it's aggressive, but it's very rock and roll. It's very 70s. And uh, he had some friends, and I'm... It's not quite so simple as this. I mean, we're, you know, simplifying the story a little bit. But essentially, he had some friends that were younger. He actually lived with, called, who were in a band that was kind of 70s punk, called The Unknowns. And uh, they used to play together at the Turning Point. And there was one night, 82 or something. And um, on the larger touring schedule, by the way, we'd already had, you know, 81, 82, Dead Kennedys, DOA played here, obviously, Discharge. But as lo- far as local stuff goes... Um, I think a, a night that, um, I wish I knew the exact time it happened, but it seems to be nicely suggestive of this, of this gradual shift occurring, which is that, uh, Greg's band, the Dream Dates, were playing at the, uh, the turning point with these kids, the, the unknowns. And, uh, they showed up and they had changed their name and they had become direct action. <laughs> and that night, they, you know, the uh, dream dates had to follow them. And he said that they came on and they played everything twice the speed they used to. They all of a sudden just amped everything up times 100. And they had this whole new crowd of kids that went nuts when they played. And they blew the room away. And uh, he said that those guys, he, he lived with a couple of them. And they were really record-buying kids even back then. And they were buying all these Discharge and, you know... Black Flag and Minor Threat Records mm-hmm. at Record Peddler and, and being turned on to this stuff from being kids who started out listening to Sham 69 and, you know, The Clash. And uh, he said that, you know, the Dream Dates kind of went on after that and just felt limp. Like, you know, they'd been so confident with what they were doing and it was, you know, they were this great live band and they just figured, we just saw the torch pass. Like, he said that was their last ever show. They didn't wow. play again after that. And it was like, that's not necessarily a cause and effect. But I like not in a strict sense, but it's not unrelated. Something had changed, you know. Uh, one phase had ended, and another overlapping it. It's not like turning a light on and off, but we were into a new phase, and uh, I think that's how it happens. Nobody comes along and says, "I'm going to start hardcore. I'm going to start the first hardcore band, and there's going to be hardcore now." You know mm-hmm. that that doesn't happen. But uh, <laughs> except Derek. Derek, Derek invented hardcore in total. <laughs> Clearly, I started hardcore. Um, no, I was gonna say like to Simon's point about things, you know, one thing influencing another and kind of the continuum. 
Um, and to address the point of, yeah, there were hardcore bands that played in Toronto before our scene really kind of kickstarted. The Dead Kennedys is a good example where the first show in 81 uh, is Screaming Sam and uh, L'Etranger yeah. opening. Mm-hmm. And so it's that sort of older guard. And then by 82, the opening bands on the show at the concert hall with Dead Kennedys are the Young Lions and Youth, Youth, Youth. And this is and six months later. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, six months later. Yeah. So you kind of see where the scene has kind of... Uh, changed a little bit between 81 and 82. Um, and the, in the case of the Unknowns, uh, they were originally from St. Catharines. So it was a, a few of the members of that original, uh, that subsequently became uh, Direct Action. But they were in St. Catharines. They were the Unknowns. Um, they changed their name for one show. They were called Desolation Angels. Mm-hmm. And they opened for the Bad Brains. In St. Catharines. In St. Catharines. And I think that was a turning point for them, where they just like it opened their eyes. And the they Bad played Toronto on that tour. Uh, it, yeah, I think they, I think that was when they played Larry's. I'm pretty okay. sure and it was. In, I think that was in '82. It was Larry's show, yeah. Yeah, in '82. Um, but yeah, they played with the Bad Brains, and they just. I think that was an eye-opening moment for them, yeah. and they just said like, you know, we got to change. And then this show happens with uh, the Dream Dates, and they've amped things up. And so all of this stuff comes from influence, and it was some of the touring bands, I think, that opened the eyes, like all of us. We get exposed to something, and we say, okay, that's that's pretty interesting. Let's try that route and, and follow a different path. And so that's kind of led to that. And Youth 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 was another good example. They started out early on they more of the British sort of style. And I think that uh, over time, I don't know if it was from seeing other bands or, or you know Brian's exposure to that music coming into Record Peddler, mm-hmm. but they started to adopt more of the American uh, style of thing. So by the time they recorded the Sin record, it's 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 a different animal than the first demos that you would hear from Youth Youth Youth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny though, with uh, in the case of the Bad Brains, because of how much the vile tones influenced them, right? And then here they come back to Toronto and they influence the next wave of bands. Yeah, we actually got the last interview with probably with Freddie Pompey while he was in the hospital sick, and he talked about that the influence and that you know his you know the influence that they had on the Bad Brains yeah. and. Even though he wasn't a hardcore guy and didn't see, he didn't see a lot of value in it. He sort of gave a sort of nice outside view. They it. covered Screaming Fist, the first ever show they played. Yeah, like with HR singing. Like it's uh, there's a recording of it too. And yeah, like, and I got a quote from Daryl Jennifer that we didn't end up using because Freddie said the story in a better way. Yeah. But Daryl was saying about his bought all these records and he picked up a Vile Tones one in Montreal and brought it back and that's that that's was it. Great. So it was in Montreal he got. Yeah, it. yeah. wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I was wondering where he finally got that record, but it's it's. Also, like, because, you know, talking about that crossover thing you're talking about, those smash tapes are a great indication of how much crossover there was in Toronto at one time before, I guess, it got, you know, camped off again. But, like, you have Bangkok on a tape with Youth, 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 with, you know, L'Estrange, I think, is on that same smash tape, too. Like, it feels like Toronto was, for a moment, like, maybe later than where other punk scenes were, but became, like, a very broad scene where new wave, hardcore bands, or what would be called Well, well and it, it starts out that way. Like, everybody, yeah. all the shows are happening on Queen Street. The Bev is, is one of the locations where a lot of that's happening. But by 82, 83, it starts to get more disparate and spreads around. Like, Larry's Hideaway sort of becomes the big place, the turning point was another massive venue, and then the Upper Lip, which was where the first all-ages shows in Canada were. Pete oh, Jones from, uh, from Quarantine set those up. Oh, wow. He called them jailbait shows because there wasn't a word all ages yet. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, <laughs> jailbait, right? But you know what? Before that, and part of what I think uh, got all these sort of uh, disparate bands together was the fact that um, there, was a, there was a group of kids from Scarborough um, who started um, 
who couldn't get into clubs. They were too young, right? There was about five or six kids, and they thought, you know what? Why don't we do our own all-ages shows in a hall? We'll rent out a hall. We'll invite some friends who are in bands and, and that kind of thing. So there was a scene that started that was very early on, and this is something that we kind of learned yeah. more about. Like, we'd heard rumors of it, I guess, before that we did this book, but then we really got to, to get a lot more information on it. It was called Start Dancing. And oh. so uh, what they would do is they would come in from Scarborough after school on a Friday night or whatever. They'd rent a hall. They'd, they met somebody who had a sound system who actually built sound systems professionally, like for bands like Rush and this kind of thing. But on the side, he was like, hey, I want to do something that's more grassroots. And this is uh, there was there was more passion from that music than there was from some of these corporate rock bands. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he threw his services behind it. And then they found someone who would be a bouncer and they found someone who would be a DJ. And they sort of got this DIY collective together and they would put on shows and then they would invite bands, you know, like the ugly models or the rent boys or uh, youth, youth, youth played on some shows or SNFU um, came into town. Uh, things like um, I'm thinking uh, like Berlin wave and some of these bands, I mean, be inside out, yeah. you know, some of these earlier sort of the, more of the punk bands yeah. that were sort of pre hardcore, but those bands would play shows together and there'd be about five bands on a show and they would charge three bucks, and it would be no booze, and it would just be a bunch of kids there. And uh, and so that was, again, early uh, stages of all-ages shows in Toronto. And some of the nights would be just D- uh, DJ nights. Actually, every fourth show would be a band show. The other three would just be DJ events, right? And the, But at the DJ events, they would play mod stuff. They'd play ska, they'd play some punk, they'd play some new wave, and it was everybody on the fringes would kind of meet at these events. And I think that's kind of morphed then into the clubs as well. At that point, there just wasn't enough hardcore bands or, or new wave bands or any band. Like there was just one of everything. So you had to kind of stick together back yeah, then. Right. Yeah. And that's what they, they stuck together out of necessity because it was the rockers and then everybody else. Right. And so the, everybody else incorporated all those types of, uh, of genres of music, which then over the years, obviously more and more bands formed in each of those genres. And then things became a little bit more compartmentalized, but early on there was that crossover between all these different scenes. And I think that's what kept everything very fertile. I was in Scarborough back then as a kid. Like, and I remember 1984, 1985, this stuff happening. I remember these dances and I, Fran, you might've even been to a couple of them. No, I don't remember. <laughs> but I remember going. And but it, she might have been there. She just doesn't remember. Possible. Yes. <laughs> I remember. It's it's like it says in the book about the, the the fringes meet though. I mean, you know, you're all kids, but there's kids that are dressed up like mods, and there's the punkers, and there's the skinheads, and there's the goths, and the scooter kids, and you know, and they would play Love and Rockets and Bauhaus and The Cure, and you know, if the things were really crazy, you'd get a Clash song or something, and everyone would slam dance like you know, fifteen year olds. Um, but by that time, I mean, this is 1985, 1986, by that time, you know, shows are all ages. There's all ages shows happening. And I think that uh, it wasn't as crucial for me because I was already realizing, oh, you can actually go and see DRI, <laughs> you know. But I but I, I don't think that ended when, quote unquote, hardcore's interface with that ended. I think that's something that, that uh, stayed happening for a while, but it's kind of, our story goes elsewhere. I think like... One of the things that I remember as a as a young person around the same time, I guess like maybe a little bit later, 87, 86, uh, was being made aware of like the gang stuff that was going on in downtown Toronto, uh, around the Eaton Center, the Metroids and the Untouchables and the Skinheads and stuff the, like there that. There was a total skinhead panic around 1980, yeah. mm-hmm. 1987, 1988. There yeah. was, 
And I mean, it was frightening. You'd go down there. We would we would get off the subway at uh, at Blur coming in from Scarborough, and um, we'd we'd get off at Young rather, and we'd walk down Young. And you'd stop at Record Pedal, or not at that point, not not at Record Pedal, Records on Wheels, which is where Record Pedal later was. Um, and then you would uh, walk down to there was a couple stores that sold uh, you know GBH and UK Subs T-shirts and. Doc Martin would have punk records back then too, probably no. Um, we wouldn't really go there. I didn't. We would just go to Record Peddler. But uh, so that's a, essentially two city blocks yeah. down, and those two main blocks, it was like running a gauntlet. Like there was the Wellesley skins, and you're always frightened that you're going to get rolled for your boots or whatever. And it happened. It wasn't purely a media sensational thing. I mean, there were some very rough characters. Uh, I think by that point, though, we'd we'd missed a lot of the worst of it. Growing up in Scarborough, we had the Scarborough Skins. I knew them. They weren't pleasant people. Um, but there was a lot of glue sniffing and stuff going on, and I think most of those people just turned into, you know, kind of biker types or went to jail and got arrested later. And there was less of that, really, by the time we were in the scene. Like, we talked to everybody in the early scene, and there was the four notorious Skins that, that you'll, you'll read about in the book and Real Presence. And, you know, there's... You know, we're lucky that the BFGs existed because they kept some of that at bay. Yeah. It's probably a combination of the goofs and uh, drugs. Like, probably heroin and the goofs are what kept the skins at bay. Most of the time, at shows, there wasn't an issue. Big shows, you'd have issues um, if it got to a big hall. But by the time we were going to the club, that was sort of what we considered our heyday, which was... Uh, place that was called the Starwood, and then the Bridge, and then Ildico's. Mm -hmm. And it ran for three years in total, about three years. It kept changing its name, and it really became our home. This is after Larry's. Larry's was still around, but then Larry's started to die at that point. I was talking to a friend the other night, and she was you know, asking her when she essentially parted ways with hardcore, for lack of a better word. And she said it was when Ildico's closed, because there was just no longer that central place. There was a certain... I don't want to talk in terms of vibes or anything terrifying like that, but there was there was just a certain feeling at that place that uh, we had places like the Silver Dollar and uh, and the Sibony and so apocalypse. on afterwards, the Apocalypse that uh, you know were were reliable places that you know you could see a good show, but there was definitely something that I can't quite put my finger on about uh, Ildico's. That was yeah, that was special. Well, that's kind of like you know the last of the bands too, right? Like that scene. You know, obviously the BFGs continue on, and there's new bands that kind of start up. Hockey Teeth, I guess, would be the next big band that kind of emerges from Toronto. But like, there's not. You don't have a direct action. You don't have a Chronic Submission. You don't have a MSI or Sons of Ishmael. Like at least that I know of later on that survived. You know, like it seems MSI like MSI went on for a while after that. You guys were ninety. Sons, yeah, you know? we st we stayed around till about ninety. Same with Sons as well. And Sons of Ishmael, same thing. But ninety one. But both had also that. changed their sound by that point. They're yeah. not really hardcore bands anymore, too. So. But I mean, like even I'm talking even post ninety, like into the nineties. <laughs> like there's not like what are the bands in Toronto like apart from hockey? Oh, it was like Rocktopus. Yeah, Rocktopus. And, and, uh, who else was there? I mean, I don't even Fran. It's like, yeah, so it's tough. Like, yeah, it's what, what is it grunge that kills it? Like, is it like, like what? What's the I day think, the music died for <laughs> hardcore? Then there was a I think I think you know, like there was a stretch of good uh, venues that you could that you could get book your band into. You didn't have to be um, an accomplished mu musician. You could um, call up the club. You could book a show. Um, Turning Point was a good example of that, right, early on. And they called it the Learning Point. Some people nicknamed it that because you could take your, your band that you just formed, call up uh, Ann and Joe and book a show, and you'd be on the stage. And then 
you know, maybe do a matinee and then they, at night they'd have a band that had a bit more of a following, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the learning point, turning point uh, scenario uh, kind of morphed into uh, when the DMZ started in 85. And that was a, a punk run club. That was the first one really in Toronto, I think. It was That was run by the Goofs. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, they had a, an amazing run. They only actually li- existed for about six months. But if you look at some of the flyers in the in the book, there's an unbelievable path of, of touring bands and local bands who got an opportunity to open for them that played on that stage over that six-month period. And then that bleeds right into the Starwood, Ildico, Bridge uh, situation. So basically, you've got a span there of about seven, six, seven years of, of punk has a home. Right. Prior to that, it was booking halls and having a show in a Legion or playing in in a booze can and that kind of stuff. Then you've got a home for that that chunk of time, and I think that was a fertile ground for all these bands to uh, to work out the kinks, right? And then you you would get ba- strong bands coming out of those uh, out of those venues, right? Like the ones you mentioned, the the Youth Youth Use and Direct Action, Chronic Submission, Sudden Impact. Like the list is is impressive, right? Micro mm-hmm. Edge and uh, creative zero and yeah. you know what I mean like there's all kinds of bands uh, you know negative gain like the bands that are playing on the on the book launch show for instance mm-hmm. which I guess we can talk about in a minute yeah. but all these bands kind of came out of that time period of that sort of early to sort of late eighties right that sort of like eighty two to eighty eight period and then yeah after that it peters out after the bridge Ildico's closes at the end tail end of eighty seven then you get into clubs like. Uh, the Slither Club and uh, Sibony and uh, Silver Dollar and just things don't feel like it's uh, your home. It yeah, doesn't. It's yeah. not your home. It's 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 like you're a visitor in a in a different space. And I guess Larry's Hideaway too. I forgot to mention early on that that's another great venue. Uh, there's a little bit m- different uh, programming there. There's a lot of metal and stuff like that going on there. And also like you know Sun Ra would play there, and it was just it was all over the map. It didn't also feel exactly like a punk club, but it had a pretty good vibe that way. But they, um, had, they had Hardcore Sundays, which was, exactly. was the incubator for all this stuff. So Pete Jones had been booking some shows and Sean Pilot at the Upper Lip. And then Pete started it and then it sort of morphed. But like, Hardcore Sundays and then in Montreal there was Hardcore Mondays. So often bands that go back and forth between the two cities. But really that was sort of the... Like it wasn't good enough to be, you know, on... You know, if Discharge was in town, sure, you're going to get a Saturday night at Larry's. Or maybe Direct Action is going to get a big show. But... Hardcore was relegated to Sunday, which was a hard day to book, but it was full of young kids that were going in there, and we were all sneaking in underage. To yeah, get the in hardcore there. matinees, like a Sunday hardcore it matinee. Was, it was sort of like early afternoon, go into the yeah. evening. It was like it was like the Sunday dinner for the freak kids. Yeah, it was. That's what it was. I yeah. think we're talking a bit. Well, not not talking too much about, but I mean, I think we're we're maybe inadvertently just making this too much about bands. You know, I mean, bands are not the only thing, and they're they're almost a product of the culture. Um, there was a lot more interesting stuff happening, and a lot of things that, uh, in terms of the the overall uh, health, so to speak, of, of punk culture, or hardcore as as a as a greater whole, um, wasn't about bands. You know, I mean, there were there were social movements and political ideas and so on that were going in and out of vogue, and uh, absolutely transformed the way this music. Um, and this this subculture expressed itself in this city, and uh, things like uh, you know we talk about this like there's the whole queer core scene, mm-hmm. and that's a crucial part mm-hmm. of setting Toronto different than setting Toronto apart. And uh, you know there's no there's no band that you think of as like that was the queer core group that changed. You know, I mean there are things that are peripheral to it, 
but it doesn't matter. I mean, people were making films, they were making magazines and so on. And, you know, that is the, the cultural product of, of punk that is absolutely as important. In some ways, I think maybe more far-reaching and more important than, you know, teenagers making records. I think it does come back to a band, though. That comes back to Fifth Column. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. Well, they're, like, they're JD's was a column in... In their zine, right? And then sure, sure. Its own zine. Well, we're talking yeah. about punk. We're not. I mean, we are talking about punk. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just not about just. If you try and um, hang this entire narrative on bands, bands, bands all the time, I think that you know there is a narrative to be found there. But I think it uh, draws you away. It m means that you end up ignoring a lot of things that are maybe a little bit meatier. Absolutely, and I think you're you're right. The the the, the queer core scene, the feminist stuff that came out of the feminist zine stuff that came out of Toronto, and like the the zine scene in general. I'm even talking things that are facile. I mean, like fashion and skateboarding, and you know, like stupid haircuts and stuff. I mean, all of these things went in and out of vogue and shaped the way that uh, punk expressed itself and punk existed in the city. We didn't have any pro skaters that came in here, right? Any big name pro skaters? I was always an anti-skater. <laughs> <laughs> we are the least skateboard disguise in the scene. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny because like there were a couple of uh, bands that I think identified sort of as skate bands, like Micro Edge, which then uh, the guitarist Reed English um, started another band called Sudden Impact, mm -hmm. right? And so um, those two bands are kind of seen as a, as a skate bands, but it wasn't really a huge scene per se. Um, my band, MSI, was kind of like, although we only have three or four songs that hint at it, uh, we were labeled sort of a straight edge band. Um, but again, there wasn't a scene built around that. It didn't really take off here as, as, as a thing. Um, and so there's, it's kind of funny in a way because like, you know, you have a New York scene or whatever, and there's tons of straight edge bands. And that's just, every show is, is, is you know, just one type of individual at that show. It wasn't really like that in Toronto. But it's it like, also lasts Well, you wrote your own legacy with a choice, you know? Like, that was the problem. <laughs> Like, sure. You committed that to vinyl. Yeah, but, but you know what? If you thing is like eighty six through like yeah. eighty eight. I mean, it's not like I mean. There's this moment trapped in time. We're like, that's New York hardcore. Well, no, it's three years of New York hardcore by a bunch of people. Like some of us go through our lives modeling ourselves on something that some teenagers did for three years and then forgot about. You know, and it's uh, well. That's youth crew. I think like New York hardcore is obviously a much larger. But but but, but, but just yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, what yeah. came along a couple of years later was extremely, yeah. and on both sides, whether it was the the born against Rorschach citizens arrest side of things, or like the squatter rot side of things, or the Marauder Madball twenty five to life side. I mean, you know, this went off in so many different directions that are dramatically. Different, yeah. But I, I think they the, all wear Nikes, though. <laughs> I think the experience though, that 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 we had. So being in MSI, like yeah, we wrote a song called Choice. But if you read the lyrics, it isn't saying do what I do. Oh, it's yeah. just saying this is my choice. Like these are ultimately it, also about deliberately forgetting your ID or changing your ID to fool people. But it's yeah, there, <laughs> yes. there, there, there is yes. there's one, one member. Yeah, there is that. But I guess what I'm saying is like um, just on the MSI point, um, we didn't take it as like a super strict lifestyle. We're going to be in your face. Like it was just, this is what Glenn and I just happened to be, uh, we came from the metal scene, right? And when you're in the metal scene and you don't drink or do drugs, you are a total freak. You're an outsider. <laughs> yeah. People think you're a, there's something wrong with you. And so, you know, we didn't obviously 
think anything of it. We're just, that's who we were. That's what we did. We did, it wasn't a, a political sort of, you know, whatever, motivated. It was just like, we just did drink and smoke. We thought it was like, it didn't make sense to us. We didn't have a lot of money. So it didn't make sense to us to spend what little money we have on doing those stupid things. When you go to a show, you want to pay attention to the band. When you want to buy a record, you need to have money to do that. When you want to put out a zine, which we did together, you need money to do those little things. So whatever piddly little amounts of money we had, we thought pissing it away, drinking and, and doing drugs was kind of a weird choice because you're missing out on the point of the music. We were there for the music. And so that morphed into um, hearing bands like Minor Threat and, you know, other bands, Seven Seconds, whatever, talking about being strange. And we, it, it, it gave us, it made us feel liberated to be able to at least talk about that and to say, this is who we are. And it wasn't a, a pushing of... Uh, of a bunch of rules onto people the way it kind of became with the youth crew. But I guess my point of mentioning all of this is that the feel of going to those shows, which is kind of what we wanted to try and capture with this book, is what it felt like to be at this at these venues. And that's why we interviewed like a lot of people that, you know, that uh, maybe just went to shows that didn't actually do a band or a zine or whatever. They just attended shows. Their opinion was just as important and valid to us as talking to the bands or the, or the people who recorded or, or the bands or promoted the shows everybody's opinion was important to us and we wanted to create a feel of what it was like to be there and to me and i think the others that that worked on the project there was a feeling of sort of being inclusive and there was this feeling of a different cliques coming together sort of like in that early part of the scene um where <coughs> you didn't have to be just strictly one thing there was you know like skinheads were at shows and there'd be you know the the sort of exploited gbh kind of punks and there'd be skater kids and there'd be you know whatever straight edge kids and we just all go to the show and kind of got along pretty well in general it almost reminds you of like a high school experience where there's all these different cliques and so our mindset going into the book was to kind of create that high school yearbook that you never had, that you kind of wanted to have. And at one point in the book, we actually have this uh, spread. I don't know if you noticed when you were leafing through it, but there's a spread that's sort of like your high school yearbook where it's all the headshots of all these people. And you're, you know, it's kind of meant to, to remind you of like, this is the class you wish you had of had. <laughs> a lot of us went to high school or some of us didn't even make it to high school, but a lot of us had high school, high school experiences that we weren't happy with. That became our place where we were accepted in that scene. And it became like our, um, you know, our, our place to grow and, and grow as human beings and experiment and do all these things. And that's why I think there's a, a, a real passion from us and from the people that we talk to 30 some odd years on. Like, it still means a lot to you because I think it be just kind of became just part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. It's funny because you, you talk, you hit it out of there with talking about, you know, MSI's lyrics and there's like, and also when you guys did the Danko interview, you said there was no specific sound to Toronto. But there is almost like one specific thing, and it's all the Toronto bands seem to have this sort of sense of humor or a sense of like looking at things from a little bit of a detachment. Like we don't have an Earth Crisis here. We have a Chris Callahan. Like we don't have, you know, we have all these bands that do have like, we don't have super earnest, diehard Youth of the Days. We have MSIs, you know. And even Sons of Ishmael like, you know, opens up with like a goofy sample. BFGs have a bunch of silly songs too. Like, there's almost like a sense of humor that's always there in Toronto bands. I think the society probably less people feel truly desperate mm -hmm. in the society than do in uh, in the United States in general or in the UK more recently and in the seventies. Um, I think that uh, those those slogans appear, and you know, people play. Play it up, but I think a lot of the time, uh, some of that stuff has to do less with confronting real problems in people's lives than acting out what they think they're supposed to do to be punk. 
which isn't going to be a popular thing to say, I, I know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I mean, this might in some ways sound um, counterintuitive after what I just said about it not being about just bands, but I mean, for me, I think primarily it's just about liking fast music. Yeah, except Neanderthal now. Well, it's said music. <laughs> I was like two two moments I never thought I'd have with Simon is where one he said Neanderthal wasn't that great. Number I've two, never liked stuff like Neanderthal too much. <laughs> I, I've never I've never been a huge fan of stuff like Neanderthal though. Okay, well, in fast I'm... though, I said myself recently. I I a year or two ago had this moment where I was like, in fast, just I don't ever need to hear this band ever again. You know, it's just who cares? You know, and for so long I would have thought that was like you know. I mean, I'm never going to feel that way about negative approach or discharge, you know? Mm -hmm. But Infest, yeah, it's cool. I don't know if I'd go see them if they came. Wow. Well, <laughs> the, the, inter the interview's over. <laughs> Damien is, is walking out. I wanted to talk a little bit about Negative Gain, though, because that's a band that I think, you know, when you go other places because of the release with Pusshead, that name got out there. But were they a big band locally? Like, was there a big following? Because I know there was a tragedy involved in that band, right? Like, at some point, like, they lost a singer, I believe. Yeah, Pete Warner had killed himself. And even, we were all at the, the I don't know if it was the bridge or the Starwood by then, but Jill Heath had to come and tell people, stop calling Pete's parents, you know, like, wow. you know, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it was it was a tragedy, and they... They were an Oakville band, but that was the thing. All the bands from the periphery were Toronto bands. Mm -hmm. So hype and 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 you know and Jill Heath, who we should talk more about Jill Heath oh, yeah. as well. I want to bring her up. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> but they they were they were a central band. They never they weren't a band that overplayed either. They were on every like bloody bill like like MSI was for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we were we were definitely the worst. We <laughs> MSI all capital letters every time. <laughs> um, you know, MSI we definitely took. Every show that was offered to us, <laughs> we never looked for shows. Like it was, yeah. it was you know, uh, Don, Ruben, Kincaid, um, and others would put on Al Ridley and uh, Sean McDonald and all these people that were um, that were really good. We never actually played on a Jill show, which was odd. And yeah. during this process, I asked Jill that because over the years, it always made me wonder: like, did she just not like the band, or did we tick her off somehow, or whatever? And I said to her, "I'm like, it's really weird. Like, we played a ton of shows with every other promoter, but never one of your shows. Why was that?" And she goes, "You never asked." And I was like, "Oh, that's, <laughs> that's true." We, we, and she said, "I would have put you on gladly, but you just never asked. I figured you didn't need it." And so it's true. Like, we never asked for a show, but we never turned down a show either. So people yeah. would ask us to play, and that was part of the reason why we didn't tour as well. Like back to what I was saying earlier. It was just so comfortable that, you know, it, it, it kind of makes you complacent, right? Where you're just yeah. like, I can play a show here every two, three weeks, whatever. There's a lot of people come out. They'll buy your records. They'll they'll like your songs. You'll have a good time. And um, we did do little tours. We went down in 87. The first tour we ever, mini tour we ever did was with Sons of Ishmael. And they were kind of like our brother band because we shared a member. Uh, so Paul Morris played uh, bass in MSI, and he also did double duty in Sons of Ishmael playing guitar. And so the two bands, we were kind of like brother bands. We went on this little journey together, and we went down to um, Cleveland, right? to Ohio, and we were supposed to play at JB's. But you played uh, with Confront, or the pre-Confront band. Uh, well, that was a different, oh, that was a different journey, okay. but but yeah, the next, uh, yeah, like a few months later, we ended up doing that. But uh, we went down on this sort of weekend jaunt, long weekend jaunt, down to Ohio and Kentucky. So we, we played, we were supposed to play at JB's in, in Kent. 
And, you know, we get down there. The club has already closed down two days before. Nobody told us that kind of thing. So we ended up playing a, a frat party in, in Kent, uh, Ohio. And that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen where the, we played it in this in this house and it basically got demolished. Uh, and it imploded while we were playing. And so that was crazy. The next day we go to Kentucky um, and we had a show booked at the Jockey Club. Which was a pretty mm-hmm. well-known club. At it's come day. up on this podcast a couple times. So um, you know, we were one of the last bands to play there. I think it closed like a month or two after we had been there. But anyways, when you go in there, you're looking at all the the walls that have been signed by you know the Misfits or you know the Ramones or whoever. Jimi Hendrix has played there. All this stuff. Uh, we get there. It was Sons of Ishmael, and we're ready to do our big show. And it's this huge hall. And there was like 30 people there. And it just, it was so sad. But we got up on stage, we played our thing, whatever. But it just goes to show, like, you know, we could have stayed at home and played, and we did. We would play a local show and there'd be three, 400 kids there sometimes. Yeah. And so, you know, traveling down to Kentucky and playing to 30 people, although it was a fun story and, and all that, like, it just wasn't really feasible. We didn't have a van. We had to rely on friends to, to borrow you know, a van to go any place and, and drive us around. We didn't have our, I don't think we even had our licenses at that point. Um, we didn't take equipment over the border because the hassles at, you know, at the border. So you would just go down there and beg to use somebody's equipment, all this kind of stuff. And pre-internet, like just trying to book shows and find out who you contact and all that stuff. It was just a lot of work that, mm-hmm. you know, telling uh, people who are in their 20s or 30s, they just don't get it because they didn't grow up in a time pre-internet that, you know, I hate to sound like that old guy, but it's this, it was like this time where it was shot in the dark. You're trying to figure all this stuff out and there were resources and there were obviously bands that came before you and they would pass down their knowledge. And it was kind of that, right? Um, but it was d- difficult to book tours. You know, you're in a, obviously a very successful band and you know that, you know, you have contacts and, and it's, you know, it's doable now to go and book a tour in Japan, whereas back then you wouldn't even know where to start, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, this is part of, I think, what kept a lot of the Toronto bands, not just our band, back a little bit is is the challenges of getting across the border and, and, and doing that when we had the scene at home that was very vibrant and supportive. Um, and so this book kind of tells a bit of that story and hopefully sheds a little bit of light on why these bands didn't get out further because you'll see the the scene that, that existed here that very few people outside of Toronto know about. Yeah. Also, as a kid, I mean, you know, when I got into hardcore, MSI and I would say the three I thought at the time together, I, I would have lumped together at the time, was MSI, Missing Link, and Sons of Ishmael. We all seem kind of different bands nowadays, but they were the groups. They were like the Toronto hardcore groups, you know? Mm. And, uh, that stuff was important to me at the time, you know? I mean, uh, Toronto had a, a pretty different sort of def- definitive style before that. We've talked about how there wasn't really a Toronto sound, but I had missed the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Toronto was kind of Kensington Market, drunk punk kind of stuff, which was fun. I went to those shows, but seeing something like... Uh, That's the longest running scene, too, in Toronto. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that is... a. It's something other than, and once again, this kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier about it, not just being about bands. I mean, there's, there's, I hate the word lifestyle, but there's lifestyle mm-hmm. stuff, there, way of life stuff mm-hmm. there that is much more important than a band. But, uh, anyways, uh, you know, it was definitely valid and validating to see stuff like Sons of Ishmael when you were a kid. And also, I didn't like all the metal stuff that was happening. You know, I, I came out, I discovered the local hardcore scene already having decided that, you know, hardcore punk was this great thing. And when I got into hardcore in quick succession, 
Agnostic Front puts out uh, Calls for Alarm, DOA puts out Let's Wreck the Party, SSD puts out Break It Up, Seven Seconds puts out New Wind, what Circle Jerks put out whatever, Fourth, whatever, like, you know, some forget, like, all of these bands were Discharge, Grave, New World, like, all of MDC Smoke Signals or whatever, like, every great hardcore band was dropping the ball hard, you, you know? You ruined things sometimes. You, I, so I showed up at the party, everybody but crapped it. I, I very quickly kind of glommed on to, like, the, like you know, and I, I didn't like kind of, you know, metalcore crossover stuff really too, too much anyway. And uh, Sons of Ishmael and MSI seemed to be holding the torch a little bit for hardcore, hardcore. Mm. Um, I was really starting to like things like uh, Ripcord and Larm and, you know, wretched and mob 47 where i was being able to hear that stuff and you know all this crazy european hardcore with buzzsaw guitars million mile an hour you know and that was not the kind of thing you were seeing locally and sons of ishmael seemed like kind of the vert like that was the local equivalent of that they were the only people locally who were plugged into that and uh i wonder if i even would have stayed involved to the same extent if there hadn't been a bit of a life raft and and also I absolutely adored like SSD control and you know urban waste and poison idea and all this kind of stuff. It seems funny to make the the connection, but MSI at the time seemed the closest thing to that. This kind of purest, fast buzzsaw three chord hardcore. So um, that first sound is just so raging. Yeah, it it rips. Yeah, and it's funny because I would make fun of it, and we we talked about this recently, and went back and listened to it a couple of years ago. And I'm like, this is a good single. Like, yeah. it sounds terrible. I love it. You and know the Nunsucker single too. Like, there's yeah. like a bunch of records that oh, yeah. came out. That's together. a good one. But they In were also yeah. They were they were not a local band. They were Kitchener, but yeah. they, they played like, here enough. They played here a couple yeah. times. Yeah. You kind of yeah. consider them to be a local band. The They're way all you the would. Pop. Well, and the way you would with uh, like Problem Pro- Children, yeah. right? Yeah. Like yeah. they 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 had like dual or tri citizenship, mm-hmm. right? They had a few different spots that they could call home. Um, that's actually another good example of a band that like because they were from outside of the scene, they like this is contrast to what I was saying earlier, where the bands that were local and really in the city, we felt like we were part of the scene, and we were it was kind of a little bit insular where you know we would go do these shows and there'd be a lot of support, so you didn't really travel far and wide. Problem Children was an example of a band that was from outside the city, but kind of was considered a Toronto band. But because they were from Dunville, they also always felt like outsiders. And so Jamie was telling us that, uh, you know, he made it his mission to go and travel all these places because he didn't feel like he was from anywhere. He was like kind of from Hamilton, Dunville, Toronto. I might as well be from St. John's or, you know, or, or BC or wherever. And so that prompted him because they weren't really insiders, true insiders in the Toronto scene, they felt like outsiders. So if you're outside, go further outside, right? And they and they did travel far and wide compared to most of the bands. And Hype was another example of that, where they at least got across Canada, but they didn't really do anything in the States. Problem Children really did the global kind of thing, and which Sons of Ishmael saw that as an example. When they saw Problem Children had gone to Europe, they said, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And so that prompted... Uh, they they sort of trailblazed a little bit, and then Sons of Ishmael followed in their tracks. Did Random Killing go to Europe early on, or I don't think they had so. releases. They did. I, I it's something we actually wrote about in the book because they never appear in this in this story, which is yet, so weird. Yet they had an LP, they had a seven inch. Yeah. They were they one of the longest starting bands, like that. Yeah. BFGs. Yeah. yeah, but they didn't really belong to any scene, and I I don't think they got a lot of respect. You know. Which is funny because, like, yeah, their seven inches, what, 85? Yeah, yeah. And, and it and sounds like Circle Jerks yeah. or Black Flag yeah. or early DOA or and, something. And they go right up to, like, I'm. They're I'm still going now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but it's another it, example of a band that didn't get the, the credit, the, the yeah, credit yeah. that they deserve. Right? Having said that, I mean, I remember in the early 90s getting packages at home sent to my, you know, my stupid little punk fanzine from... Uh, Raw Energy? No, it wasn't Raw Energy. It was uh, one of the major labels, like A&M or whatever. Well, because that was Raw Energy's distribution for a while. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, they were on Raw Energy, yeah. but I, wa- I was getting... From A&M. The, 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 the packages from A&M. And, I mean, you know... Who else in Toronto was getting major label distribution? But it's, you know... It's yeah. Yeah. But I think the other big thing about Toronto is that we were a destination for bands coming in from mm-hmm. the U.S. and some U.K. and European bands. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, at the beginning, it's it's the Garys are bringing in all these bands. You know, we talked to, to Gary Top for the book, and he's not really a hardcore guy. Uh, and it's really Jill Heath and then Don LaBeouf, uh, who's Ruben Kincaid, uh, who's Hype's manager, that take up the torch. And like I was saying, you know, by that mid-80s period, it used to be that it would be maybe two shows a month, and then it became, by the bridge era, two shows a week. So tons of bands are coming in from all over the U.S., and they're making a crap load of money, and they're seeing us as an important stop. So we got all the best bands coming to town. So yeah. like, I don't think every scene got that. An interesting point, too, of those two main promoters of that sort of mid-80s time, Jill Heath and uh, Ruben Kincaid, Don LaBeouf, uh, both of them are from Oakville. So again, slightly outside of the the city proper, but uh, definitely not only part of the scene, but they built the scene, right? They, these oh, are two yeah. people that were instrumental in building the scene. And, and, you know, along with, like we mentioned earlier, Brian Taylor, like there's a few people that really are key individuals and we tried to focus in, on them in the book and, and tell a little bit of their story, right? Like they're, they're people that we um, admired the work that they did at the time and we appreciated it, but we didn't really know their backstory at all. And so the book, we try and get into a little bit of that and we're like, what, where did they how did they come up with this idea yeah. to start doing all this stuff? Like there was, again, there wasn't really a huge, uh, pool of, of, um, examples to draw from other than the Gary's about how to do promotion. And like, what would prompt Jill as a, you know, high school student or whatever, Don LaBeouf, just a few years older to go out on the limb and bring all these bands into Toronto. And, um, th- there was risk involved and they took it. Jill, Jill's like life could be a movie. Oh, you totally. know, like you think about like you know who else is in in the van with Black Flag, taking photos of youth of today, booking the Misfits, like doing all these crazy stuff. Like she's someone that, like you're saying, like it's more important than bands. Like that is nowhere better illustrated than in the work of Jill Heath in music. Like she is someone that even when I was going to shows, like all a lot of the first shows that I went to were Jill was still doing the door, still putting on those shows. So like. Very hard worker, very organized, yeah. and uh, um, and I think that some of the touring bands, um, you know, appreciated that there was a, a female in the scene that early on that was you know taking charge of things and doing that. And there was there was a lot of examples actually in the early scene um, of of uh, not a lot of women in bands per se, but a lot doing promotions. Um, one of the of the two main people with that start dancing was uh, there was a, a man and a woman that started that or. Kids, a, a kids, kids yeah. a male and a female kid that started that. But anyways, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, and then there was a lot of females doing zines and that kind of thing. So there was and photography, and uh, a lot of that is featured in the book. Where yeah, like Jill is the primary uh, photographer, really, that we feature on in, in the book. A couple of the early fanzines, the best early. I mean, I, this is not mere tokenism. I mean, it, yeah. it's absolutely worth mentioning that a couple of the. Uh, I was really amazed going through the fanzines, 
and uh, seeing stuff written about like deep stuff. You'd, you'd, you'd love this stuff. Like deep re like reviews of really obscure European hardcore singles and stuff showing up in 82, 83 in Toronto fanzines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, w fanzines done by local punk women. You know, there was definitely a connection um, that they were integral to uh, to making to the rest of the world that uh, I think was largely overlooked by the rest of us. How did you feel being in the scene as a, a woman? Well, as you mentioned before, um, how it was, we were all kind of misfits in school and didn't really belong. And so we just kind of found our people in the scene and... Uh, as a woman, I never felt um, threatened or um, different from everyone else. I didn't even really notice. Um, like, I, I just felt like one of the guys. So that's what I liked about it is that I wasn't treated differently and I wasn't treated in a, like a sexualized manner. And it, it, it was very comfortable as a woman. Um, other than being in the pit, that I just avoided. <laughs> but, but that's why, like so many of the photos that we have of pit scenes, they're full of women. The other thing yeah. that was freaky for the color ones is not everybody's in a black t-shirt. It's like yellow, <laughs> pink, blue. But and I, I interviewed Ed Ivy from the Rhythm Pigs, who was yeah. here often, and he was sort of saying that, like you know, we lived in the scene, and we thought, okay, it's a sausage fest. There's maybe ten percent or twenty percent of the scene are, are women. So you sort of think, okay, there's not a lot of women in the scene. But he said, you know, I've toured all over the U.S., I've toured to Europe, and he said, you know, Toronto and Europe was full of women in the scene, and he said you never saw that anywhere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like, everywhere he toured, there wasn't that many women in the scene. So he said, I noticed always that Toronto had so many women. It's funny, because, like, a couple of years ago, I got a bunch of zines um, from Carolyn from Fifth Column, and they're, like, ones that were sent to her from... You know, Kathleen Hanna, Toby Vale, like, on their fanzines being, like, you're stuff is an inspiration to us yeah like, and it's really like it is such an amazing kind of scene that gets going once again like going back to it being more than bands but you know like that really kind of kicks off here you know like spreads worldwide like you have out punk you know taking inspiration from stuff that was going on here with jds and stuff and like all the stuff that they would inspire in turn so it, it feels like it is a scene that you know might not get the credit but its footprint can't but help but see, be seen when you look for it, you know, like everywhere. Yeah, totally. Um, so you've got the big release show coming up. So what's going to be going down for the release party? Um, through the process of doing the book, we talked to most of the key bands, and um, there seemed to be a, a willingness, excitement um, about the subject matter and sort of re re reliving all these memories and all that kind of thing. And a few of the bands sounded interested in uh, maybe playing together again. So we started to kind of spread that word about like, would you be interested in maybe doing, you know, doing a, a set? And we had a number of bands that were really into the idea. So we thought, okay, well, let's try and put this together as a, you know, sort of a reunion show of sorts, I guess. Um, to celebrate the book and the scene that we had. And in the end, there's five bands, actually, from the 80s, um, several of which haven't actually played together since that time period, like 84, 83, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. that are getting together to play a one-off show um, to celebrate the launch of the book. So that's going to be happening at the Hard Luck Bar on uh, Saturday, October 13th, 2018. Um, the show, unfortunately, by this point, is already sold out. So, uh, People are going to be listening all over the place. So. Yeah, so uh, I just want to let everybody know that the tickets are sold out, but there may be a few spots at the door. Who knows? But um, 
the bands that are gonna be playing on the show are all included on the seven inch that comes with the book so the uh, the set uh, of bands that night that's gonna be playing a set would be uh, negative gain sudden impact uh, chronic submission creative zero and micro edge so oh, all crazy so all five of those bands are gonna be playing sets and there's going to be a, at least one surprise that uh, that we know of, and there might be a couple. Uh, so there's, MSI. MSI. That will definitely MSI. not be one of them. <laughs> Which we tried. We that tried. would definitely... That would be, that's the one that I think would be, for me, the most exciting thing to ever happen, because I think I've talked to several members that said it's never going to happen. Yeah, I think it's a, more of a chance of Rocktopus happening than, than MSI. <laughs> but no, it definitely won't be MSI, and it won't be Sons of Ishmael. They did a reunion... Six or seven years ago, yeah. we we talked to them about it, and uh, they, they thought about it. They, they thought about it, who's but there was singing, who's singing for Negative Gain? Uh, Grant. Okay. So he after over, yeah, yeah, after uh, Pete passed away, Grant did take over uh, vocal duties. So he was more. so he was playing guitar, um, and Grant's a, a, a big boy. He's a he's a football playing guy. He actually had a scholarship down uh, in I think it was North Carolina. Uh, to play football, and that's partially what happened with the band is that you know he spent a lot of time doing that, and so the band just kind of fizzled out when he when he went away. But um, for a while there, he was commuting back and forth, and after Pete passed away, he decided that he was playing guitar when Pete was alive, and when Pete passed away, he took over. Uh, guitar and vocal duties okay. but he was a very physical dude so it quickly became apparent that like he really wanted to kind of get into it so he ended up having to pass along the guitar duties and just became a standalone singer at which point all hell broke loose like he would basically do get into his football stance knock over tables and and just shit disturb at shows and it was it was comical to watch he was he was a one-man wrecking crew he would invite uh, people uh, from the audience to come on stage uh, during one of their songs, and they would just basically people would be th- thrashing around on stage, ripping out guitar chords like it was just a shit show. What was that Silver Dollar show? Was it Agnostic Front or Verbal Assault? They opened for where, it, yeah, he was in he was in full uh, full rampage mode. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was something to behold. It was awesome watching him do it. I don't know if he's going to be doing it on this reunion. Maybe a few years uh, later, he's <laughs> he's calmed down. It's not as up, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Um, he he was a great dude, and so like all all the guys in that band were great uh, people, and uh, it was really fun to watch him play. And uh, he was definitely a character. And there was a bunch of those kind of characters in the scene that was fun to watch these people play. Like back to direct action, like they just had a persona that was like this larger than life thing, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of like the misfits, like in your in your brain, the misfits from '82 or whatever, where they're just like from a, they're not real people. They're not doing groceries. They're not doing you know what I mean? Like they're just book characters. Yeah, they're 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 like they're they're superheroes or yeah. something. You know what I mean? And and so to some degree, like you know, Grant was kind of like that, where it's like this isn't a real guy in a band. <laughs> this guy is like a character, right? He's like he's ripping shit up, and it was awesome to watch, right? Um, and yeah, you're right. Like putting that album out on Pussmort and having a pusshead behind them, that got their name out there the way a lot of these bands. I think should have had that sort of exposure, right? And Jill was yeah. responsible for that. Jill was the well, one. Jill's one who got that. Yeah. She's okay. the one that uh, she knew Pusshead from working with the Misfits and all yeah. that stuff. So yeah. she had that connection, and so her uh, connection outside of Toronto was what helped to get at least a little bit of this stuff filtered out there. And also, she put out the uh, the um, No Mind record. Yeah. Um, and so the she Articles did her of faith record. Yeah, too? she did the Articles of Faith, and that just came about. That's what I think I started her label was that. 
she knew them because she had put on some shows here in Toronto when Articles of Faith first came in like 82 with MD, with MDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, MDC just said to her, hey, we know this band. They're pretty cool. Can we put them on the show? She's like, yeah, sure. And then she saw them and fell in love with the band and thought this is amazing. And so the last album, when it was recorded, they didn't have any takers to put it out. And she's like, well, this you're an awesome band. You The world needs to hear this. And that's what prompted her to start Lone Wolf Records. Lone Wolf Records, yeah. Having said that, I gotta say, No Mind were the band live. The record is, you know, it's cool, but it's the classic case of a band that didn't tour and the records never really captured them. They were absolutely phenomenal. They were probably, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about all these all these different groups, but man, No Mind were the best live band. They, actually, I'm gonna, I'm a good demo too. I'm yeah, gonna, yeah, but demo. live. <laughs> I'm gonna interrupt. I'm gonna interrupt with a quick story because No Mind actually did tour. They toured the states towards the end of the band. Yeah. And uh, Chris Black, who's the drummer for Sons of Ishmael, um, uh, and also and our guy, former and our guy from Raw Energy yep. Records. So. Uh, he went on tour with them. So he drove the van, and he actually did that with MSI and Sons of Ishmael, too. He'd be our van guy. He's the guy that had the van, so we're yeah. like, cool. Uh, so anyway, but he went on tour with uh, No Mind, right? And they go down to the States, and they did the same thing I was telling you. They'd go play to shows, and they'd show up in Des Moines, and there'd be 20 people there, and just this whole thing. Anyways, they got to Detroit near the end of the tour. They were working their way back to Toronto, and somebody said that um, uh, that it was Ron Ashton's birthday, um, somebody somehow just randomly said that and they were at the club and there was like eight people at the club and so uh, I can't remember which guy it was but I think it was maybe Scott just said fuck it like I'm just going to call Ron Ashton I'm going to look him up in the phone book and call him and invite him out to our show on his birthday and he came That's with cool. an entourage he came to the show and walked up to them afterwards and said that you guys are actually really impressive. Like you guys are really heavy. And Dave Walsh was just like, that made my life. You know what I mean? It's like to, for Ron Asher to come out on his birthday. Just so you, you never know, like some of these tour stories, they do actually pan out and you're just like, thank God they got some, something out of this. They, they got some recognition and some good vi- feelings. I hate the vibe thing too, but good feelings from like do, putting in a lot of effort. And once in a while, those little things pay off. There's some yeah. validation. Yeah. Some validation. Yeah. 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 Would, would Ron Ashton have played here with the Royal Monsters when they played here? I think so. And stuff like that? I think, so I think, yeah. Yeah. Like Gary would have done that at the horseshoe. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. the yeah. flyer yeah. for the yeah. horseshoe yeah. and stuff like that. It's, it's Well, like you said, it's like such a destination city. So yeah. like when you start thinking about who came through here and who like you know was, was playing and who people got to see, well, you guys got to see too. You know, like it's still, it's, a, it's an amazing... I don't know, it's an amazing project that you undertook, and as, like, a fan of this scene, and as someone who's been, like, cheerleading this for a long time, I think, you know, my hat's off to you for all the dedication you put in to make this kind of, like, a reality, so now it can be disseminated to the rest of the world. Well, thanks. And uh, we tried to, again, like, focus on the local bands, and there is a a key feature, but we actually do feature a lot of the touring bands that came through Toronto, because that was an important part of it, so... In the book, you'll see, you know, not just some of the, the, the local names that outside of the city you might not who, know who they are. You're going to see bands like Battalion of Saints and Suicide Tendencies and, uh, you know, like these different, like, kind of key Side. shows. Soulside. Soulside <laughs> did a show at the Quacte. And that was, again, like, whether you like Soulside or not and the grand scheme of things and how, you know, how important they were to the whole thing, that show was a mind-blowing show. Seeing them in a basement club, it was jam-packed, like, way beyond capacity and it was an intense event so what we tried to do was capture some of these key shows um of touring bands and they would obviously have local bands on the bill Mm -hmm. but some of the shows that really kind of were key moments that that impacted the scene in one way or another right like that dead kennedy show we mentioned earlier or 
Italian Saints was like a, a big crossover show. That's where you saw a lot of metal people showing up in 85 that hadn't really been going to shows before that. And um, the scenes were kind of blending a bit. And obviously them covering, you know, Ace of Spades was like a almost a, a signal to people like, okay, this is a safe space for metal people and punk people to kind of coexist, right? Yeah, where did, I was going to say, where did Slaughter and, and Sacrifice and, and that, where did that metal stuff fit in? I know DOG, Death of Gods, had like, there was a little bit of connection between them and Slaughter, but... yeah. Was there any interplay between there, these well, yeah, there, yeah. there were, and there was crucial shows at the, at the Starwood where it was DRI and COC, and one night Sacrifice opened, the other night Slaughter opened, okay. and that was really the melding of of the crossover scene in Toronto, and that was very early on in, in like... What, that was 85. 85. That was yeah. November of 85, but like Sacrifice was more sort of a true metal band, whereas Slaughter, they really took a lot of cues from, um, from punk, right? Mm-hmm. And actually... An interesting fact that I learned during the research of this book. Uh, so Anthony Reed, uh, a famous member of the scene, uh, he was a guy that you'd see in the pit, and you know, like you couldn't miss the guy at a show, right? He's very prominent, and and whatever. He and Terry Sadler, the bassist from Slaughter, were best friends back like in the seventies, oh, in the late seventies. They had a band together, a bedroom band that they did, and that was the early versions of Slaughter songs was with Anthony singing. And different lyrics, more punky kind of lyrics. Oh, that's sick. Were there recordings of that? Uh, there were recordings. Anthony said that recordings existed, but I've checked with both guys. They don't have the tapes, but they said that they did record that kind of stuff. So those songs ended up becoming um, Slaughter songs later mm-hmm. on, right? Terry Sadler was, uh, in the late 70s, was very into like the plasmatics and stuff like that. He was actually a pen pal with Wendy O. Williams. So he has like tons of, like they, they wrote to each other all the time. They were like best buds. And so he was very much into that. He would go to the Hardcore Sundays, would never miss a show with like um, direct action and all these local bands. In fact, they even said that, uh, he was even saying that um, the way that Zig, the guitarist for direct action, dressed inspired them and their stage show. So Zig, um, one of the things that he's kind of famous for is uh, he ended up accidentally stabbing himself with a bayonet. And the stories in the in the book, uh, it's a crazy story, so I won't spoil it, but he ended up, like, he was very theatrical. He had this, like, sort of Mad Max kind of character that he would go on stage dressed up, and he'd have a bayonet, and he'd be rubbing his guitar and slashing around and whatever. And Slaughter did the exact same thing. They'd come on stage with like a, a, a sword or a machete or whatever, and 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 slaughter a, a you know like a like a baby a doll you know what I mean on stage like Alice Cooper like or something. And so they took some of these cues from what he was seeing from some of the punk bands like yeah. Dark Action, right? So yeah, there's definitely this influence in Slaughter, and then you'd see them playing on some of these shows like with Coc and, and Dri, and there was definitely this melding. Where, but they still almost had a distinct metal and punk scene, and they, but they would coexist pretty nicely. It wasn't quite crossover yet, where the the sound was crossover, like some of the bands like Crumb Suckers or mm-hmm. something. You would think, you know? I've always kicked myself over this because I grew up where in Slaughter's neighborhood, and uh, the bathroom um, on the first floor in my high school, there was this big line of graffiti they could never get off. There was a Dead Kennedys logo, and it said Terry Sadler is a fat wimp. <laughs> and uh, so we had two punk crowds, hardcore crowds, essentially at my school. Like you know, we're all fifty. That was probably written by Terry Sadler, by the way. <laughs> so there's um, there's like kind of the the hardcore kids, which was me and, and Leanne, this woman that got me into all this stuff, and and Eric Fleming, who's <coughs> on the back of the MSI record that's about to come out. And uh, you know, we all loved uh, Dead Kennedys and Black Flag, and you know, and then there were these the metal guys that had crossed over that all loved DRI and COC and Suicidal, and you know. We didn't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. We, did, we just thought they were, you know, metalheads. 
And they would always go and watch Slaughter practice. This is like 1985, 86 yeah. in my neighborhood. And they were, they was always like, come see Slaughter practice. Come, you know. And I was like, whatever, you know, like they've got long hair, you know, it's like <laughs> metal. And I never, ever went and saw that. And I'm not a death metal guy. Yeah. But I do like. Slaughter's. I, I do like Slaughter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more like Celtic Frost yeah. than, than, you know, Cannibal Corpse or whatever. And uh, I just, I kicked myself over, you know, I mean, not everyone wanted to cross over. I sure as hell didn't. You kind of went to a punk rock high school, too. Like, it's amazing how many people. There was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot beforehand that I'm only now becoming aware of but um the thing is i you know i could have seen what became a significant form of music essentially being born mm -hmm. in a basement after school and i never bothered because they had the wrong haircuts well, and also chuck and from, i would do the same now chuck from death flew up right enjoyed them for a while very briefly but yeah that was, he was in the band for a little bit that was earlier than this that was before that, okay. 84 85 right what about Mal Havoc? Because they're the band that you hear these stories about. We used them to hang live. out with them all the time. And they're like fucking crazy, right? Yes. And but well, <laughs> yes and no. So should we say? Fran and I just well, it's Fran's label, but we're we're starting a label together and our first release is um we're we're putting out the nineteen eighty six Mal Havoc demo. Oh fucking Age awesome. of the Dark Renaissance on vinyl. Awesome. So, demo. Yeah. But I used to um I used to we were in East Scarborough. So we were still in Toronto, but Pickering was close by too. Mm -hmm. So we would always go and and I think you guys knew them back then too. Like yeah. he was obviously the total metal guy, James from Malhaven, yeah. but he also hung out with all the hardcore kids. He was at all the shows. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he but socially, I mean, he I don't remember any other metal people. It was a bunch of hardcore kids and him. Yeah. And uh he didn't drink or anything. He was, you know, he was he was not like the like the cliche of the the, the partying eighties metal dude or anything, yeah. and uh, I remember he was really into CDs early on. You know, really we had, we used to drive to Buffalo, and uh, the, you know he really wanted like, you know, Venom and Sodom and Celtic Frost on CD. Which Celtic makes Frost sense that those demos were only coming out as a CD. Yes, <laughs> and um, he had a crazy. He was really into tape trading. Um, you, you're aware, obviously, of the whole tape trading underground yeah. that arrived around. So I remember going over there and hearing demos by, you know, Artillery and Mantis or whatever, and, you know, worldwide global black thrash and stuff, but also horror movies. He was really into taping, tape trading VHS horror films. He was, a, he was an interesting guy, and we're actually meeting up with him next week, which I'm kind of looking forward to, because I haven't seen him in nearly 30 years. Because you hear those stories where he, like, would blade on stage or, like... Yes. Hang himself upside down in a sack for the whole show, and then that, that definitely the that definitely came later though. In uh, that was more of like a '90s kind of thing. But the earlier uh, period was him playing guitar. Okay, and uh, so he'd be on stage. It was basically guitar-based drums. And the the slasher period kind of came later when he was free to just be a vocalist, right? Yeah. Um, but when he was back in the day of of when he was doing that demo in '86. Um, he would come on stage with like his priest collar and he had the long hair and everything. And yeah, it was, it, they were a very intense, amazing band to see. And that demo is like mind blowing to me. Oh, it's incredible. That, 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 it's mind blowing to me that that has not come out and been reissued. And I'm glad to see it's finally going to have that happen. But yeah, that, that, like all the guys in that band were actually kind of the same way. Like they would go, they were definitely metal guys. They had the long hair, the whole thing, but they would be going to hardcore shows too. It's amazing how many, like, kind of, like, these geniuses of genres came out of Toronto, you know? And I think another guy that, Matt White, 
doesn't get credit, but like in pop punk circles, that guy is considered one of the great songwriters. Like if you talk to someone that like likes two line filler, they're like one of the best bands of all time. <laughs> I'm not gonna say whose face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I might not share this opinion. But that, like, it's amazing, like, you know, how many savants of genres kind of came out, you know? Well, there was a band also called um, Haggith, which was a metal band, and uh, and they morphed into a band called Visible Minority. Okay. And they were a visible minority in that they were all metal guys playing it, playing at punk shows. And so that was their take on what a visible minority was. Um, Not but a 2018 name for It's a totally, yeah, yeah. totally... Uh, they were appropriating our culture. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so they, uh, they were mind-bogglingly fast and intense and tight and all these things. And they had, like, they seemed to be sort of in the right place at the right time but somehow didn't get together they just weren't motivated individuals they did like they were more into it for like let's play a show and and try and get laid and smoke some pot but but technically musically they had the the chops did they do a record uh they did a demo okay um i think it was called wasted remains and yeah never uh just tape there's like another band, Violent Tent, maybe? Was it Violent Tent from Toronto? They did another, they did a record on Fringe around the same time. Corpus Vile is who you're thinking of? Maybe it's Corpus Vile. They're from Winnipeg. Oh, they're from and Winnipeg. And they, they were an odd, I saw them actually at the Razor, um, the, there's a Razor video <laughs> that I'm in, jumping off the stage. <laughs> but we all didn't like them, because, I mean, I, it's funny, because I like them now, but, yeah, you know, back yeah. then it was like, What's yeah, just, we're just, uh, it, that one? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it was, um, what had happened is they were a metal band, Corpus Vile, yeah, and they became a hardcore band. And their record was on Fringe, and it took so long to come out that they were touring to support a record that was another kind of music. And um, they were pretty frustrated. I mean, you know, they had been booked this big tour playing with a bunch of metal bands, but in the meantime, they'd become, a hardcore band. become something yeah. else. And um, one of them was, was, was with Razor. They had an SSD cover on their record. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was off one of the, the metal records. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, you know, in retrospect, I mean, you know, people pretend to like that stuff now, you know. But back then, you know, that, stuff was, that was very, very disappointing. But it's hip to like, you know, I'm really into the third Warzone record or whatever now, you know. And uh, they were definitely ahead of the curve on, you know, embracing terrible American post-art <laughs> Well, and, it, and it's funny, even though, like, we covered, you know, 80 to 89, there's a lot of stories about how metal was not accepted at all in the early 80s. Like, there was this line and a pretty violent line between it. So for us, we were all sort of in the crossover era, and there was metal kids and whatever. It didn't really matter, but there was... There's a, a great story about a fight that took place between the um, the Gasperks and the Turning Point. <laughs> a couple, oh, a couple. The upper lip. Yeah. Or upper lip, sorry, yeah. 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 Like Because they were kitty-cornered from each yeah. other, and there was at least two riots that happened between the Gasworks and, and the upper lip. That's awesome. <laughs> what about, was there a moment where Brian Taylor grew out his hair? Like, you hear about, like, Gnostic Front putting out the metal record? Well, he actually, he started out with hair. Um, so that's when he met Rob Malian. Okay. Um, he met him at, uh, I think it was York Mills Subway. Uh, he used to carry, like, a, a, a radio on his shoulder and be blasting music. And uh, he saw Rob Malian and kind of gave him a nod because he saw a crass uh, armband on Rob Malian. And Rob's like, do you know what this is? And Brian's like, yeah, it's a crass armband. And then they hit it off from there. And uh, so originally YYY had a, had a different singer, um, but 
Brian had never sung before, but they asked him, you know, like, why don't you give this a shot? He'd never really thought about it. And Rob Malian was this like, you know, why not have a guy in the band that you're friends with and that you want to be hanging around? And that's sort of how he ended up getting in the band and eventually obviously cutting his hair and working at Peddler and all of that stuff. But meeting Rob Malian early on, he actually was a, a long haired guy. And then over the years, uh, you know, he, he documented the hardcore scene, as we mentioned earlier, um, and then started to morph a little bit more into the metal side, right? And mm-hmm. again, like, not to, you know, you can't really sort of uh, state overstate the importance of, of Brian to that scene because he documented all those early bands. He was very early adopter of metal in the punk scene um, to the point of where he was promoting Venom and, and Metallica and bands like that on his show when he was doing his show on CKLN, right? Arg Rock, yeah. which, which is a thing that, like, for, for guys like us that came into it in around 84, 80, maybe 83 to 84, maybe 85, that sort of range, you were listening to those shows and that was giving you the, the signals of what is out there. And so you're kind of listening to, one, one minute you're listening to Metallica, the next minute you're listening to Discharge, the next minute you're listening to uh, AOD, and you're kind of all the lines are blurring, right? And so that's, I think, part of what helped foster that crossover scene in Toronto was that show and and his influence on putting that stuff out there. He just wanted to have a radio show that was music he liked and didn't believe in the boundaries of you know those, those genres and even the record peddler. Like originally, it was just all records filed alphabetically, not by genre. The, the running joke was somebody would say, "Where's the alternative section?" He'd say, "You're standing in it." <laughs> I remember listening to Arg Rock um, when I was like 15 and sort of withholding judgment on things because I wanted to find out if they were metal or hardcore or not, you know, because uh, <laughs> he'd play some like terrible hard rock song and it'd be like, and that was Black Flag, slip it in. And you'd be like, oh no, I'm supposed to like them, what? <laughs> and then he'd play some totally ripping like heavy thrash song and he'd be like, that was Celtic Frost. And you're like, oh no. I like That's it. That's metal. I was not like that stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he th- that was definitely a huge eye-opener. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I cannot wait for this book to come out. Um, everyone will order it. I will put the information at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, and, yeah, thank you all for working so hard to kind of document not just this scene through this book, but, like, you know, the Malhavik reissue, like, all the reissues you've done, Simon. Uh, like, I think, you know, without people like yourselves doing this work, you know, this stuff would be forgotten and we wouldn't have all this great stuff to kind of look back. And there's so many other people that were involved too. So we're just the, the, the face the of, yeah. of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. There Check were pe- the credits list. Yeah. yeah. There were people like Tim Freeborn from Sons of Ishmael who did tons of transcriptions for us. Uh, Steve Perry, who's, you know, been a scenester for, yeah, a solid scenester doing a radio show for 30 plus years, a punk radio show in Toronto. Right, and was a soldier. And was, and was in Perry one blood. Is the is the Disney Brian Taylor. The exciting thing is on his show, he's going to be doing a whole series of shows and podcasts from all the interviews because he did the bulk of the interviews at, at CIUT. Yeah, we worked with Steve to yeah. do a lot of the interviews um, at the radio station, so they have been recorded, and uh, throughout the coming months, he's going to be airing all these different interviews of like, all these bands. Oh, that's awesome. So it's a whole other component to the TOHC. Like, although the book in and the record is what we focused on, 
we've been partnering with other people in the sense of like, let's try and really document this on a, on a larger scale. So the interviews are going to be airing. Uh, Schizophrenic Records is, is doing a release uh, schedule of old Toronto hardcore stuff from the 80s. So they've already put out Sons of Ishmael's Hayseed Hardcore record. Mm-hmm. Um, Young Lions, they did uh, a sort of retrospective uh, set. That's The packaging on that is unbelievable. Um, the MSI and Chronic Submission records will be out in time for the book launch show in a couple of weeks. And then after that, there's going to be another Chronic Submission, the first demo tape will come out on, on vinyl, and also the Direct Action demo is another thing that they're working on, I believe. That's so, awesome. And possibly Negative Gain as well. So there's a bunch of things that are kind of going to be coming out uh, throughout the rest of this year and early into the new year in this Toronto, 80s Toronto hardcore uh, vein. So... The book is one document, but there's a lot of other things that people can check out that, that will be coming out over the next few months. Well, I went behind the MTV building the other day and looked at that chronic submission graffiti that's now fading away. So it's glad that the reissue is going to be out, just that <laughs> graffiti fades from view. Thank you all for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.